This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. 7.32 Saturday on the 19th of November and welcome back to Battle for Malaysia, BFM's coverage of GE15. I'm Wong Xiaoning. I've lost my own name. I can't pronounce it. Wong Xiaoning. Wong Xiaoning with Philip C. Well done. Well done. I got my name right, finally. Well, we're following the results of hot seats across Klang Valley with our reporters on the ground. Gomba is being closely watched as the incumbent Perikatan Nationals Azmin Ali goes up against former protégé Amiruddin Shari of Pakatan Harapan, who is also the current Menteri Besar of Selangor. Ooh, this mentor-mentee relationship so complicated. However, it's not just the two of them. It's a five-corner fight in Gombak and Barasa Nationals Magat Zulkainain could yet pull an upset. Now, here's an update from Danya Nair of BFM News, who, has stationed in, who was stationed in Gombak the whole day. Our colleague Shazana Mokta spoke to her. Hey, Danya. Uh, tell me, what has the atmosphere been like in Gomba today? Uh, well, I've been to uh, three schools today uh, in SK Samamalawati and SMK Samamalawati. Um, and surprisingly, um, there's been a really huge turnout. I can say at SMK Samamalawati, people started uh, queuing up at around 7 a.m. Um, and the line just really went around the school. And it was quite surprising, really, because speaking to some Gomba voters before, they were quite apprehensive about voting because they didn't know who they wanted to vote for. Uh, but clearly that didn't stop them from coming out. And what was the crowd like? You mentioned there were a whole lot of people. Is there a noticeable demographic at the polling centres? Did we see a lot of younger voters come out to exercise their duty? Yeah, definitely. I think most of the voters that I've spoken to, they said that this was uh, their first time voting uh, and I did ask them about how they felt about coming out, especially everything that happened after the Sheraton move. And they said that they felt like it was their yeah, responsibility to come uh, and vote and just, you know, try and make a change in, in Malaysia. But, um, of course, there were older voters coming out as well. Um, saw quite a number of um, senior citizens being uh, pushed in with their wheelchair through to the voting centre. Um, but, yeah, quite a lot of uh, first-time voters, I would say. Have there been any reports of major problems or disruptions to the voting process during the day? Has the weather had any effect? Well, at the, when the voting started, I have to say there was a bit of rain. Um, but I don't think that people were quite deterred by that. They still came out. I saw already a line of people with their umbrellas standing outside waiting to go and uh, cast their ballots. Um, I think there was um, some issues about um, giving their phones in. I think, um, like uh, Muda candidate Limway uh, pointed out, that uh, they weren't very strict about asking to take their phones away. And when I asked some voters um, at SMK Tamalawati, they also said that they weren't asked to do it, but they did it um, on their own without being asked to rip. Mm. Okay, so relatively smooth um, throughout, it seems, at least at the polling centres that uh, you have observed. Now, talk to me about the fight that's happening in Ampang. It's a five-cornered fight. Uh, who are the more prominent candidates based on your engagement with voters? Well, I guess it's, it's really um, former and uh, uh, former MP Azmin, uh, Azmin Ali. He's been the incumbent Gombak MP for three terms, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and of course, Amiruddin Shari, who is the Sangho Manchi Basar, um, who was really sort of um, Azmin's protege, so to speak. So that's been the real big talk among voters. Um, for now, it's kind of hard to say who they really want to see come in as MP again. Mm. Um, some of the older voters are really saying that they don't want him to come back, especially um, what happened last time. And if you remember, there was also the case that 10 Gombak voters started against Azmin that got thrown out eventually, but... There is that sentiment hanging around, whereas other people don't seem to be too affected by it. But I think 
in general, there is some dissatisfaction with what happened with Azmin. So maybe Amiruddin could stand a chance. And um, what are some of the issues that uh, voters are particularly concerned about in Gombat that they want the next representative to take up? I think one of the main ones really is the lack of transportation uh, facilities. Uh, speaking to some of the voters, they said that um, you know the getting to the LRT is quite difficult, even though there is a Gombak uh, LRT station and even things like buses, and uh, it's hard to come by. And they feel like there's been a lot of development with like forest areas, sort of being used for um, you know buildings and things like that. So they're quite um, unhappy about that, really. Danya, thanks very much for sharing your insights of the day. I've been speaking to Danya Nair, journalist with BFM News. That was Shazana Mokta speaking to Danya Nair for an update on Goba. Now, let's turn our attention to the state of political and institutional reforms. Now, despite the political instability of the past two years, there's actually been surprising and welcome progress on the number of legislative reforms. The most notable reform is, of course, the anti-party hopping law, which came into effect in October after months of wrangling between political parties. Now, the passing of such a law was seen as absolutely necessary to assuage voter anxiety following the 2020 Sheraton move. However, many other reforms remain in limbo, including the introduction of the Political Funding Act, two term limits for the Prime Minister and the separation of offices of office for the Attorney General and the Public Prosecutor. So will the next government seriously pursue institutional reforms and why is this paramount? For some thoughts on this, we have on the line with us Trisha Yeo, CEO, CEO of Ideas. Good evening, Trisha. I hope uh, it's it's been a very exciting day for Malaysians as we go out and vote. Uh, thank you for joining us. But help us recap the key reform measures that have been successfully passed since GE14. What are the highlights for you? Hi, good evening, everyone. I'm sure uh, it'll be a late night for us all. So I think it's good to draw back and think about the things that have happened uh, over the last four years. So in terms of the major reforms that we've seen since the last GE, I think the main thing really, which we all saw the effects of today, uh, was the lowering of the voting age to 18, as well as the automatic voter registration, right? So that two, those two things combined, basically has seen um, the 5.8 million new voters who, uh, we, we didn't hear the final count yet, but from what I see, um, you know, it was actually quite positive, quite yeah. encouraging, the, the turnout today. Uh, that's one. The second thing was already mentioned earlier on the anti-hopping law. That was something a lot of voters agitated for, especially after the Sheraton move. Um, the third thing, which I think actually went under the radar um, more than it should have, it was the constitutional amendment to make Sabah and Sarawak um, equal to the rest of Peninsula. Um, actually, it was attempted under the Pakatan Harapan government, but um, it was only achieved under the consequent government. Mm. And the last one, as far as the MOU was concerned, um, was equal constituency development funding, which ideally should have been done through a form of legislation, but um, it was something that was achieved via the MOU. So, Trisha, don't you think it's rather ironic that, you know, we've had so much political instability, but we achieved so much, I mean, relatively, right? And that's a function of that MOU that took place between Isma Sabri and Pakadan Harapan then. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that if not for the political instability and for the weak parties um, that 
we actually witnessed from 2020 onwards, this would not have been possible. So if everyone can recollect from March 2020 onwards, it was never really a certainty what the majority that the Tan Sri Mohidin government actually had. Um, in the sense that everyone was speculating, yes, he had a razor-thin majority, razor-thin majority, but what the actual number was, was never quite concluded, uh, simply because this was not revealed to us, right? Uh, when the Agong selected him as the prime minister, uh, the number of MPs supporting him was something that eventually the public never really knew. So um, throughout that period, I think it was always shaky, but Ismail Sabri did achieve this during his tenure and mm. if not for that weak party situation uh, they would never have opened themselves up to the possibility of speaking about reforms the way that they eventually did mm. so this is something to keep in mind I think as we move into a period of forming a government again um, whether or not we will see weak parties in place uh, I think a lot of speculation is that there will not be a simple majority by any one coalition. So this is something to keep in mind, I think, if people are distraught over a potential hung parliament. Yeah. So there are some ben benefits from it. But um, Trisha, let's take a step back and look at the reform agendas of the coalitions as laid out in their manifesto. How do they stack up against each other? And how would you assess the level of commitment they have based on the pledges that they've made? Sure. So uh, when I was analyzing the manifestos, I actually, you know, put down a list of all the institutional reforms uh, separate from the economic ones, which I think we've talked about the other day. But as far as the institutional reforms are concerned, if you stack them up against the other, it's very clear that the Pakatan Harapan one has a simply longer list of things that they have committed to. Um, and very specific things, right? So they're talking about the Freedom of Information Act, asset declaration, more independent appointment of the Chief Commissioner of the MACC, public procurement reforms, uh, Whistleblower Protection Act amendment, uh, Ombudsman, media freedom, separation of public prosecutor from the Attorney General. I mean, it, the list just goes on, right? I'm not going to read everything out. Um, if As far as the BN and PN lists of institutional reforms are concerned, they are shorter, are not absent. And um, uh, the uh, the BN and the PN one um, still exist. So for example, the BN one still talks about the separation of, uh, of the public prosecutor and the attorney general. Um, the PN one talks about having an anti-corruption court. Um, and also mentions MA63. So I think something that's consistent throughout the three are essentially more recognition of um, the uh, Sabah, the states of Sabah and Sarawak. Mm. Mm. And, and, and Trisha, you know, let's just take a step back, right, beyond just the whole laundry list of policies. I mean, we should focus on the August House and improve the quality of debates that take place in Parliament, you know, because honestly, many of us are frankly frustrated with people calling each other names like Orangutan or Baroque and such. How can we shift the quality of conversations to proper serious policy debates, right, taking place in Parliament, what kind of measures do you think we need to do so that the next parliamentary seating will actually have proper policy debates as opposed to name-calling? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think ultimately it is about strengthening Parliament uh, for serious policy debate, which we really haven't taken seriously all this time, right? And if we were actually able to change the rules 
um, we would actually and these things I have to I have to stress that they are really boring and administrative and banal sort of reforms that um, most of the public will not find interesting. It's not sexy, but it really is the the thing that will help to improve the quality of the way politics is done in the future. So I'm just going to give some examples of this. Um, number one, we need to increase the number of sitting days. Uh, parliament doesn't sit nearly enough, and this applies across the board from parliament to state assemblies as well. Number two, we need to have more permanent parliamentary select committees. Yes, we do have select committees now, but they are, you know, they change as frequently as the speaker changes. So it's really dependent on the speaker to decide what kinds of permanent, uh, what kinds of parliamentary select committees exist. So if under the PH government, there was a state federal uh, relations PSC under the PN government that PSC just ceased to exist. Uh, the same thing happened with uh, public appointments uh, committee. So mm -hmm. I think permanent PSCs really is the way forward. But this also means that the Parliamentary Services Act needs to be restored where it's clearly stated, you know, what, are, what is the role of parliament, are providing greater resources to parliament. If we fund parliament better, we can create stronger institution of parliament that can support the MPs, and then they will be perhaps more, uh, more policy-driven. And the last thing related to that would be also improving the quality of the parliamentary library and the parliamentary research capacity so that there are more researchers dedicated to the MPs. I mean, right now, there are researchers, but all 222 MPs share them, which means that the MPs just, you know, resort to hiring their own researchers. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back uh, in a moment and discuss more reforms with Trisha Yeo, CEO of Ideas. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Begin Free Malaysia, BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Welcome back to BFM 89.9. We are continuing our GE15 coverage. Uh, on the line is Dr. Trisha Yeo, CEO of Ideas. Just a moment ago, we were talking about reforms. Trisha, I want to continue this discussion and ask about the role of the Speaker of the House. Now, prior to GE15, there were a lot of questions about, you know, how independent should this post be? Could you give us your views on it? Is it a post that we should relook at? Um, for the speaker, I think, you know, not enough attention was given to it up to the point where the PN government came in, right? And uh, the reason the speaker needs to be very carefully appointed is because the speaker really has a lot of decision-making uh, powers or is given a lot of decision-making powers in our existing parliamentary system. Uh, so number one, the speaker decides who and when certain MPs are allowed to speak. Um, the, number two, more importantly, I think the speaker decides which are the agendas of the day that are going to be tabled in parliament. Um, really crucial because throughout the history of Malaysia, I think there's never been an instance where a private member's bill, for example, um, gets tabled. So it gets submitted to parliament but never tabled, which means that um, you know he decides how quickly the order of the day is. Uh, the, the government's business is typically the order, order of the day. So these things really require the speaker to be as neutral as possible. Um, but of course, you know, because of the system that we operate in, we're a Westminster parliamentary system. 
it's always the case that the speaker ultimately will be chosen by the executive. Um, so unless we change the entire system, that's not something that's going to change. But ideally, the government chooses someone who, in the opinion of the widest number of people in the public, command that kind of uh, confidence. And I think that's really crucial in an environment within which bipartisanship is more crucially valued than ever. You talk about the speaker. Let's talk about cabinet members now. You know, the criteria for appointing a cabinet member, what what should be done, you know, in selecting our future cabinet? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, our cabinet ministers and deputy ministers really need to... I, th- I think it's not just, so, okay, number one, I just want to say that it's not just about the ministers. I think selecting people for the cabinet means that you're assuming already a pro- professional, a sufficiently professional pool of members of parliament uh, from which you can select from, right? That you can choose from. And if that pool is not necessarily very professional in the first place, this means that you don't have very many people to choose from. So I think um, MPs themselves, I don't know, parties need to have a higher selection criteria for their MPs. Uh, and, and of course, the bar should be higher for ministers and deputy ministers. If all of us applying for jobs need to have some level of professional qualification, um, you know, why should this not be the case for ministers? So for ministers, maybe that's something that um, perhaps coalitions can start to think about for their next manifesto. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, the issue we have in front of us, Trisha, is the possibility of a coalition government being formed. And if we take the example of Ismail Sabri's administration, he broke the record with 70 ministers and deputy minister positions. So if coalition politics is here to stay and every party expects to be rewarded for being part of the team, aren't we going back to square one then? Um, Yes, absolutely right. So, uh, which is why, I mean, basically the problem here is that in a coalition um, of, say, three to four different parties, never mind coalitions themselves, right? So you're mm-hmm. talking about coalitions of coalitions. Then all these different senior members of the parties and positions will be expected to be re- rewarded accordingly. Uh, there's only so, so many cabinet minister and deputy ministerships you can dish out. Um, and this is this goes to the other problem of appointments of government-linked companies directors, right? Because then if you can't get a ministership, then the next best thing is to be chair of a certain GLC or a federal statutory body. Um, and this is where political appointments abound. I think we're not anywhere near reversing that kind of cultural practice anytime soon. Um, but I agree, it's a, a colossal waste of public funds and if we do expect to see this form of negotiated coalition emerging out of this election, um, then perhaps that's something that um, voters and analysts need to caution against, especially as we weigh against the bigger challenge of any government coming in, which is balancing the public funds and the whole fiscal aspect um, of our financial measures in the future. I mean, I wonder out loud, you know, with this all these political appointments in, and everyone's being, you know, assuming multiple roles, is that why we see things like really terrible attendance uh, at, at MP level? You know, that people just uh, stretch, they're just doing all sorts of stuff on the surface level, but just not able to execute on the ground. And that's why you see like the August House really not having proper debates then because people are just not turning up. I think that there's just been not enough attention and 
resources allocated to the entire institution of parliament. Um, I think that, you know, the speaker under PH administration really tried to change that. He attempted to bring or to restore some kind of semblance um, of that honor and openness of parliament, right? Having speakers come in, inviting the public, uh, that engagement, that interaction with think tanks and academia from outside, that was visible during that tenure. And that's really what parliament should be seen as. Um, but without, without thinking about parliament as a serious institution that can do work, mm. by, by having so much dependence on the executive, um, this is where the majority of the MPs that so many Malaysians voted in today, they're not going to be given opportunities to do their real jobs. So this is why it goes back to having PSCs. The real work in, in many other Commonwealth countries starts in PSCs. Even before parliament sittings begin, you scrutinize budgets, right? Yeah. You have yeah. PSCs that shadow each ministry and the real work starts there where the opposition members can be given responsibilities and roles that right now they just don't have. So as an opposition MP, what can you do? I mean, you're just there to hold press conferences, really. Patricia, are we also at fault, Malaysians, because of what we expect from our MPs? You know, we complain about drains being clogged. We complain about potholes. It becomes so local. Yeah, it becomes local versus rather than policy. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a vicious cycle, right? Like mm. we keep complaining about this day in and day out. Um, is it the voters' fault or is it the leadership's fault? It has to change somewhere. There are options available. There are alternative you know, models to look beyond Malaysian shores and we have examples um, to look at. And these things are put on the table. So the leadership as well can't shake off that responsibility because sometimes they enjoy um, they enjoy the dependencies that the constituents have on them because this leads to things like credit claiming um, being able to you know intervene on behalf of voters that's very valuable for politicians but it really needs consensus across the board to really show the seriousness in wanting that change um, so that especially at MP level, they're not going to have to behave as if they're local councillors. There's a role for that. So yeah. an understanding of the three layers of government <laughs> is absolutely crucial. I think you hit the nail on the head about understanding the different layers of government, which is why then the question in my mind is the interplay between those elected officials and the public service. You know, do you see the reforms needed to be clear about the roles and distinctions between those elected officials and those civil servants then? The role and distinction between elected officials and civil servants, um, well, yes, but I think the the distinction between you know federal and state and local council is actually more important. Um, and the problem is that local councillors here are appointed and not voted in, which is why that particular layer of government is so invisible to the public. Uh, if we were to restore local government elections, then we would be able to understand that actually when you think about roads and drains and pipes and traffic lights and all that, um, that doesn't fall under the purview of federal government. I mean, okay, with some exception because there are federal roads as well, so that gets complicated. <laughs> but the, the bulk of local issues 
falls under domain of state and local governments. Um, and it should remain there. Federal government should be talking about national level policy. We should be talking about you no know, geopolitical issues. Yeah. What is Malaysia's role in Southeast Asia? I mean, that conversation has gone completely off, off the books. All right. Thank you for your time. That was Dr. Patricia, your CEO of Ideas. We're heading into the 8pm News Bulletin. BFM's battle for Malaysia GE15 coverage continues after this. We're handing over the baton to Sharad Kutan and Lee Chui Lin. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.